The pandemic has opened nurses' eyes to seek out new careers in nursing. We always get more questions about what other opportunities there are in nursing other than working at the bedside. Both of us have our master's degrees and it has afforded us career advancement, flexibility of schedules, and work-life balance. Going back to school is always an option. And Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. They're consistently ranked top in the U.S. for diversity and highest paid graduates. In order to help nurses advance their education during these crazy times, they are offering over a dozen different types of easily obtainable scholarships, starting at $10,000 for any nurse who enrolls in the spring 2022 semester in either their online MSN FMP or DNP FMP programs. So visit them at smumsn.com. Again, that is smumsn.com. Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or any other podcast listening platform, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates to when we have our latest episodes. Also, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you like what you're hearing and you love our advocacy work, don't forget to go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the donate button. As little as $1 or $2 a month for a total of $12 a year will help us with our monthly podcast costs such as website hosting, our hosting platform, audio equipment, and the time and energy it takes us to put out good quality episodes. We thank you and we appreciate you. Hi and welcome everyone to the Greeners Podcast this week. We have an exceptional guest. I am so excited that she finally said yes to come on to our podcast. Without further ado, Sarah, please introduce our guest. Our guest tonight is a force to be reckoned with. She is also a colleague of ours. We have Birgit Umaigba. She has a Bachelor's of Nursing and a Master's of Education. She is a clinical course director at Centennial College, York, and Trent Universities, where she teaches nursing students in the BSCN, Bridging, and Internationally Educated Nurses programs. She is also a professor at Durham College, where she teaches a mental health course to personal support workers. Birgit works as a critical care emergency room registered nurse across various hospitals in the greater Toronto area. She is a public health nurse with the cities of Durham and Toronto. In addition to her many hats, Birgit is a vibrant member of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and volunteers as a scrutineer at the RNAO annual general meeting. She was recently featured as a guest speaker at the RNAO's 96 AGM and with the Canadian Medical Association. She is passionate about nursing and strongly advocates for more equitable health care in Ontario. Throughout the pandemic, she has been very vocal about repealing Bill 124 and implementing 10 universal paid sick days for better nurse retention in Ontario. She has been featured in several journals, media, and healthcare debates both nationally and internationally. Birgit envisions a diverse nursing workforce where different cultural groups are represented in nursing leadership and academia, and not just at the bedside. 
She is a wife and proud mother of her 10-year-old daughter. Birgit is a lifetime member of the Golden Key International Honor Society. Her other passion is music. She recently launched a song demo and enjoys singing in her free time. Welcome to the Greedy Nurse Podcast, Birgit. We're so glad to finally have you here. Thank you so much, Amy and Sarah. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I mean, is there anything you don't do? There's like so much here. I thought I thought we were busy. We need to get you singing on our show now. Like you, you're putting all the things out. So like we're gonna we're gonna ask all the questions. Absolutely, I'm ready for it. Bring it on. Okay, so let's just let's just dive into it. Maybe you can sort of tell us about your background and a little bit of your experience as a nurse. I know we I know we touched on it, but I'm sure you've got a little more you can add. Um, well, thank you. I think I, I, I would be here all night long if I, <laughs> <laughs> if I were to go through that. But um, I'll just make it short. I started my nursing journey at Seneca College. Um, I did my two years nursing there and then I transitioned to York University. So it's a collab, it was a collab program. I graduated from York University. I started working as a student nurse, which is a clinical excellent role. And then um, right away, I applied to my master's program. I think that was how my career just took off, I would say. Um, I started teaching with York University. I started in the lab. I I taught international educated nurses and transitioned into the BSCN program and then Centennial College and then all the other universities and colleges. And um, I, I honestly do love trying different things, especially career-wise, just to, I want to explore as much as possible to see what exactly I, I want to be doing long-term, pretty much. Uh, so as a result, I've, I've worked as an agency nurse with to transition into different hospitals. I think so far I've worked at 23 or 24 different hospitals across Ontario. So in their ICUs, Emerge, and also on the floor, on the medical surgical units. In addition to that, I, I, I don't know, I decided to apply as a public health nurse <laughs> in the vaccinator role. I, I, I did that for a little bit, but my acute care hat was just like missing. So I'm like, you know what I think, I, I'll go back to the ICU. And yeah, pretty much that's my journey. But I really do enjoy teaching. I enjoy mentoring uh, the next generation of nurses. I find so much value being there for students and actually showing them that compassion is possible. Wow, that's that's really amazing. I mean, you you have quite the eclectic journey. And I mean, I think that just shows in terms of all of the advocacy work and all the various different things that you've been doing, right? I mean, again, I, I would say that you are Canada's most prominent voice in, as a nurse in the ICU. Don't give me those eyes. <laughs> it's true. It's very <laughs> true. You are the voice of the Canadian nurse in the ICU right now. So my question to you, uh, Birgit, because literally um, every time we do a podcast, it's like a, a mini conference. So what do you want people to know right now? Oh my goodness, a lot. First of all, I don't know how I, I became the voice. I I don't know if I am the voice. <laughs> There's so many, so many voices out there that actually add to the to the stories and uh, to the wealth of um, experience I would say it's been a very difficult journey working as a nurse in this pandemic it's 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 been difficult for experienced nurses and new grads alike 
ICUs right now, some of my colleagues actually do describe ICUs emerge or whatever department you work as a war zone. I'm not even kidding. Most times, most days, we're actually running, literally running. And I think, as you know, most people listening have heard on the news, um, there's a shortage of nurses nationwide and worldwide. And um, we're starting to see, see the impact on patient care, unfortunately. So ICUs are, you know, short-staffed all over the province and all over the nation, I would say. And this is really difficult. And nurses are bearing the brunt uh, because we are there at the bedside 24 hours, right? I, I don't think there's any other profession that sticks around with patient professionals that stick uh, would stick around with patients for 24 hours a day. So nurses do that. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough nurses to respond to this pandemic. I do think due to a lack of you know funding in healthcare specifically to retain nurses, uh, we've, we've arrived at this point where we don't have enough nurses to respond to the disaster that's happening. It's, it's hard to hear, but it's not surprising because I think what we've been trying to kind of say for a long period of time, and even when we kind of first started our podcast, we always talked about the nursing shortage as this chronic problem. This is not an acute issue that has come just because of the pandemic. I remember even getting into nursing school and I'm talking about a nursing shortage. It's just, it kind of boggles my mind as to why we haven't moved the needle on it. And it's only now when, you know, the the house of cards are really coming down that people are like, oh, wow, this is a problem. Nurses have been saying this and, oh, now we, we should listen to them. It's it's ludicrous that, you know, we are actually in the situation that we are in. It, it breaks my heart every day to hear my colleagues going out. And like you said, you described it as it being a battleground, a war ground. And I think people might think that sensationalizing it, but it's because they truly don't understand how difficult it is to be working in those conditions, seeing those types of patients every single day, day in and day out with feeling really no relief or no end in sight. So I totally hear you in terms of how difficult it is right now and what people really need to hear and understand what's happening in the hospital. Yeah, and we've heard of entire emergency departments shutting down, right? So this has already affected patients. And I think that, yes, nursing shortage is a chronic problem, but we're getting to the point where this is beyond anything we've ever seen. I saw recently there was a a whiteboard and there was, I think, five or six nurses on for 33 patients and literally only one nurse for the day shift. So when you talk about your colleagues not being able to leave, those are the situations we're talking about. Like you physically can't leave because these patients, their life depends on you staying, right? Until someone can relieve you. And that's very stressful. So I can only imagine what you're going through every day and your colleagues. And no wonder people are leaving because it's just to their breaking point. You know, it's been, I think for all of us, it's been a really tumultuous two years. Just some of the immediate interviews I've seen, it's it's evident, you know, it's really hitting you emotionally and, and us too. I'm just wondering if you can think back to any sort of really impactful story that maybe you can share with our listeners, like something related to nursing or maybe not that really stands out to you over the past two years? Well, there are so many. I'm just going to share some of them. Um, I I remember, I think during wave two, when we had to use iPads, facilitate visitations or virtual visitation with families and patients. The pressure of actually trying to navigate through technology, not really because 
it was difficult, but just because it was, we weren't ready for that and it was so rushed and all that time it took, you know, get things set up and have family understand and hopefully be able to connect. Some some days it was really difficult, we weren't able to connect. And as nurses, we carry this burden for families as well. We try to put ourselves in people's shoes. I, well, I do that, I'm not sure, but most nurses do that. And it, it becomes really difficult because you feel like you're failing the patient. So just the team spirit at that time was very inspiring. And I still see that, but even though the morale is so low, there's people are tired and sometimes people just zone out now. They, I'm trying to be so understanding that people are not trying not to help. They're just not there anymore. They're tired. They're zoned out. They, they don't even know when you're calling for help. During that wave, the support from staff and, and nurses coming together, even clerks coming together, it's just to help facilitate that. I think it was very inspiring. I think that team spirit really did keep us going. And it's really hard now to keep that spirit up because people are just tired and uh, there's nothing left. The uh, nurses are depleted. I'm not saying that to um, ask for pity or make people feel sorry for nurses. I just wish I could bring people into the situation, at least one, just a one-time visit to see what we go through. So yeah, the team spirit was quite inspiring, and but it's really sad to see that has also dropped a lot. That's actually really hard to hear because I, I think about like how nurses generally are. And I think I'd say probably through even some of the most difficult times in my own practice, like we were still able to pull together, but I, I can only imagine how at this point in time, it's beyond exhaustion, right? It's, I almost envisioned it as you were saying that it, like, they're just fully checked out. Just you're so overrun with emotion that you can't even show emotion. And I kind of remember back in wave two as well. And I, it was actually an exciting point to start having, I think it was closer to wave three, wave, that they were reopening the hospitals to have visitors at least in our patient, I think they were called patient partners in at that time. That was a really difficult time where I remember people were like, okay, you know, we don't have visitors. The whole hospital was locked down and thinking to myself, like, what are we doing? Like, how devastating is this going to be for patients and families? Because we know that, you know, family members that come in, they actually do provide support and help and care. And then that burden fully shifted really to the nurses, right? That was the work. That was another piece of work that nurses were expected to do, right? So Mm -hmm. even if it was for five minutes, I'm sure setting up the call took even more time than that, right? I could only imagine, right? I kind of view nurses as the default caregivers. If there's anything that needs to be done in particular, who's going to do that? Nursing. Who's going to, you know, facilitate this call? Nursing. There's an issue with the iPad? Nursing. We're always the ones. And because we're at the bedside, right? Like, you know what I mean? Every little task, everyone's like, not me. It's not my department. And it always falls to nursing. And this is the burden that we have. And I think at some point we just get numb to it. Like, it's the only way to survive. We're in survival mode. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to actually share this. I I was going to take a patient for a CT scan, right? Normally we have porters come in and they help us, especially when patients are in the bed. So they're usually transferred very uh, bad to the testing centers. And uh, one porter showed up, but it was rather late. Um, so I ended up pushing the bed with the porter and the chart and monitoring the cardiac monitor. We got there full PP, obviously. On our way back, 
porter came and we transferred the patient back. And of course, I had to be the one to put everything together, you know, just making sure the patient was settled. But just again, we're porters most times when there's no meal, we try to figure it out with the kitchen staff, well, room services, just everything exactly as you described it. So yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the other things that probably some of our guests would like to hear and understand about, you know, the environment of the ICU is really, we keep on talking about uh, staffing ratios. And when we say that, you know, staffing ratios should be one-to-one, so one nurse to one patient, what does it look like when it's, you know, one nurse, even two patients in the ICU? Like, how could you, could you describe that to our listeners, what that might be like? Yeah, absolutely. So typically in an ICU setting, one nurse is assigned to one critically ill patient. So meaning a patient on life support machine um, that's breathing for them on multiple medications and they're usually very unstable. So they need to be monitored really closely. So a lot of times we sit in front of the room and we're actually looking at them and documenting their vital signs every hour. Um, So that's how, you know, um, critical it is. But now we're seeing those types of patients actually being assigned, two of those patients being assigned to one nurse. Um, unfortunately, that that is very difficult. It's difficult to keep an eye on everything. It's difficult to catch when a patient is going to go into a cardiac arrest. And it's, it's just difficult in terms of managing their, even like, you know, airway, if you have to suction them and everything. I actually, as a matter of fact, um, I remember having two very sick patients during wave three, and I I was trying to advocate that I cannot manage this assignment. This is impossible to handle because two nurses actually reported off to me, so two separate staff, and I'm like, how on earth am I supposed to look after these patients? And the charge nurse was feeling helpless. There was nothing she could do because we were short staff. You know, I was so frustrated. I was. I even like, you know, I, I'm going to go home, but I know I couldn't go home. I will be reported to the college as well, right? You know, we have a legal obligation to stay in such, in such um, circumstances. About unsafe work, I, I don't know what falls into unsafe work when it comes to nursing, honestly. Um, so I ended up trying my best. So I didn't go for breaks. Both patients were very, very sick. And um, I think it was like at 5 a.m. So it was a night shift at 5 a.m both patients were crashing at the same time. So their oxygenation dropped at the same time. Um, I was with one when the alarm started beeping on the other end. I had to scream and yell and say, you know what, guys, you have to take over that patient. I can't be in two places at once. There's nothing I could do. I was so mad. I remember staying, I, I think, over... 45 minutes over my shift that day just to be able to document and and to capture everything that happened, right? And then when I got home, I was, I drove home in tears. I was so devastated. I felt like I didn't do enough for my patients. But again, I I tried my best to advocate that this was an unsafe assignment and um, something could have happened. Luckily, the patients did survive, but one of them could have died. And I remember sending a very lengthy email to the manager, the the charge nurse, I copied everyone in the organization and said, you know what? You actually almost killed someone's loved one because Mm -hmm. of unsafe assignment. So that's usually the case. So it's very unsafe now. We're having two, three patients being assigned 
to a nurse in the ICU setting, it's a recipe for disaster. The situation, I was actually going to ask you, you know, what would happen if two patients were crashing, but you you already answered it before I could get to it. And I'm sure what you just described is unfortunately a common scenario in ICUs. And luckily, in your case, someone got there in the nick of time. But I can I can just sense, you know, how distressing it must have been for you, because even though you knew you physically couldn't have helped because you couldn't be in two places at once, it's still something that weighs heavily on you because at the end of the day, you were that patient's nurse, right? And you couldn't do what you wanted to do. And I think a lot of nurses are feeling this way, but it just seems like nobody is listening and nothing is actually changing. And that's the frustrating part. Like we hear, we hear all this um, lip service from government and, and politicians, but at the end of the day, nothing is really changing for nurses. No. Yeah, I was going to jump on that and say, well, one, I'd say that, Birgit, that you did all that you could have done and and probably then some. And that, too, like you actually did make a call and a ploy to say, hey, you know, political leaders come and spend four hours, even if they spent one hour in the ICU, like as opposed to, you know, taking pictures beside empty beds, because that's going to help nursing. Like even if they took the time to listen and say, hey, let us come and see what it actually is like, that they might have a better understanding. But, you know. They just aren't listening to us. Yeah, they're not. They're not. And and I, and then again, it boils down to the kind of treatment they get when they visit the ERs. Because uh, there have been cases where politicians uh, came with their family members and they really did get valet treatment. So of course, if they're going to jump the line every single time, then they will never understand that people do spend 10, 15 hours in the waiting room in the ER. Uh, unfortunately, that is still happening. Wow, that's 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 crazy. I don't even know what to say to that because we're supposed to be working in a system where it's based off of, you know, triage. We use triage. We we want to make sure that the the sickest patients get in first, not the richest patients. But again, you know, I mean, people's intentions, we keep on talking about that our system is supposed to be devised of people over profit, but we know time and time again that um money talks, which is quite an unfortunate uh, series of events, especially when it comes to healthcare. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but um, still kind of on the same uh, vein and thread, but you do a lot of advocacy work, which, you know, of course gets our attention, gets other people's attention because it's so, so hugely important. Like I couldn't imagine that, you know, like this is what nurses should be doing. All nurses should be advocating at this at this point in time. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your journey into advocacy? And then also, what issue do you think is the biggest and pressing concern right now for nursing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as someone who has actually um, experienced poverty firsthand and experienced homelessness firsthand, um, so you, you can see that there are a lot of issues that I can relate with. Too many. It's my lived experience, and they're very personal to me. And I cannot emphasize how important the social determinants of health are and how much we need to advocate for that. And as nurses, we are more like gatekeepers into um, seeing what patients actually do go through and bringing those concerns to the forefront. And hopefully our our voices do matter, but even though politicians don't think that our voices matter, but I, I must say that our voices do matter because we spend the most time with patients. So yeah, I actually did go into phase of speaking out because first it actually, I would say, started with um, me working and actually going to different hospitals and seeing who's, who's mostly impacted by 
the pandemic. And I'm like, wow, it's the same set of people I'm seeing. And not to say that other communities or uh, ethnicities are not, but racialized community are heavily impacted, especially during the, the second wave. Oh my goodness, I remember uh, walking through different ICs and seeing the same kinds of people, racialized people in those beds. Every single patient I had that had COVID had either no paid sick days, had gone to work sick, was living in you know uh, congregate communities, crowded housing, and the same things over and over again. And I'm like, wow. And a lot of times these people have been silenced by the society in different ways. Um, and I'm like, wow, what is the best way to go about this? And, um, and you know, it's nurses have been silenced and we're still silenced in different ways. And I'm like, how do I do this without getting myself into trouble? And I think the greatest advantage for me has been the fact that I don't name hospitals, I don't name facilities, and the fact that I'm not employed by any hospital whatsoever. So my stories are very they come, nobody can actually know where that story is coming from. And I try to maintain patient confidentiality, not to share patients' in, uh, information and all that, to make it as generic as possible, but to make people connect that this is what, what is happening. There are actually horror stories that I do have that I'm like, if I share these stories, I will lose my job. I'll probably lose my license. So I just save those and sometimes I just write them out and I rip the paper just for therapy because they're too devastating. That's exactly how I got into this and hopefully I can bring to limelight with other strong advocates like you and Sarah and there's so many out there too, but it's so important that we address this from an equity perspective, right? When it comes to nursing, the most pressing issue right now is for the government to repeal Bill 124, which we all know is a bill that was introduced by the Ford government to suppress our wages, to actually give us a pay cut. Because since this pandemic, um, nurses have been working more than twice as hard. Workload has increased and our pay is definitely not commensurate to our work. Um, So you're having five nurses do the work uh, that 10 nurses should be doing. But then again, we have Bill 124 that says, hey, you can keep doing that work, but you cannot bargain your pay. So experienced nurses have left because of that. So many nurses have gone into different other roles. I mean, nurses that should be in acute care areas right now, we can't really get them back so fast. They're irreplaceable. I'm going to keep saying that. So we need that bill repealed ASAP because we're in a crisis. And hopefully hospitals can use this time to reflect and hopefully implement strategies on better retention for nurses. We need flexible hours. There's so many colleagues of mine that want to work on a casual basis. They're close to retirement. They don't want to work long 12 hours anymore. They don't want to work night shifts. So many, and, and hospitals never, almost never accommodate any of these nurses. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to quit. They're going to go through private agencies and they're going to come back to those hospitals because private agencies will offer flexible hours. So there, there's so many things working against nurses and it's not just nurses. And I, and I, I, and I want to say that nurses are the backbone of healthcare, but it, it's quite unfortunate that this is not being tackled and that nurses are not being retained in any form or capacity. So I think Bill 124 has to go and I, and I hope it does go soon enough. Hopefully we can start from there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, election time is uh, coming around the corner. Um, <laughs> please make sure you get work. I feel like nurses should be like getting out and knocking on doors almost to say, yeah. hey, you know, this is what's been happening in healthcare. Here's what Bill 124 is. Here's how you can help us eradicate it or get rid of it, right? Like, I, I think that's such an important message. Yeah, and I think Bill 24, it speaks to a bigger issue of feeling disrespected and disempowered. So it's it is the money, but it's not just about the money. It's how we right, feel right. that we're being treated. So we've been called heroes, but yet hey, you're going to get a pay cut. We're not increasing your wages even though you're literally saving lives every day. And I feel like this is really contributing to the shortage and I know that there has been a lot of talk about, you know, what are some creative strategies we could use to help with the nursing shortage and there is a huge group of internationally educated nurses who aren't being utilized and I've heard of many nurses in that boat spending thousands of dollars and years trying to get their license and a lot of them give up and they end up working as PSWs or other healthcare aides. How how do you think we can amplify their stories and get that message out? I, I remember a few days ago, I, I sent out a tweet um, directly to the media to start um, profiling the voices of international educated nurses. And I, I honestly did get some media requests and I connected um, those reporters to the IENs or international educated nurses that I know. Uh, some of them that reached out to me on social media and uh, were working on um, writing an opinion piece and all of that. I'm also on the board with uh, World, World Education Services, which actually does deal with the research and um, you know advocacy for internationally educated professionals in general. As you know, we need data. We need the numbers uh, to be able to inform policy. So without data, we're not. We don't know how many INs are on ground. I I know the RNO actually recently put out a number, uh, I think 15, about 15,000 IENs uh, in Ontario. And I also do believe there may be more than that. Um, so we need, I think that they're a solution right now. We need them to come on board, but we need the College of Nurses to work with uh, universities, universities or colleges, whatever, to help them transition faster. Over the summer, I taught in an IEN program that was, I think, set up and they got funding from the government. And this started two years ago to help transition IENs. This program is highly competitive. There are only 50 spots. So how could there be only 50 spots when they're like over 15,000 nurses? Um, only 50 spots. And some of the students that I had said, you know, miss, it, it took me two years to get into this program. And I've been trying, and I'm talking about people with 15 years ICU experience. One of them had worked in Iran, had had like a wealth of experience under her belt. And so many of them like that, and they're working at Costco, Walmart as we speak. So it's such a shame because these are nurses that could be transitioned right away and could help solve the problem. So we are here canceling surgeries. We're canceling life-saving surgeries. Every surgery to me is important. There's nothing like non-urgent or whatnot because what's urgent for one person may not be for the other. So it depends on how your body feels. Uh, and, and I have seen how many patients ha- that had their surgeries postponed came back sicker and unfortunately because the surgeries were delayed. So isn't it better to have these nurses come on board so they can help so we don't have to cancel these many heart surgeries, cancer surgeries, as opposed to having them work at Tim Hortons and McDonald's and it's, it's, it's just beyond belief. I got a message yesterday. Uh, one of the hospitals is actually 
recruiting internationally educated nurses to work as student nurses. Yeah, I saw that in PSWs too, yep. What a joke, what an insult, right? Um, so how much of this is discrimination against foreign trained professionals, especially those from the global south? So it's all fraught in racism, this idea that, yep. you know, when you're educated in, in the global south, your education is not enough. So you have to go back to university and people give up. You know, I had a student in my group, he was a medical doctor, from Iran, and he went through four years of nursing, he's graduated now, and he's going to start teaching. But what a shame. What a shame. The layers of bureaucracy, layers of unnecessary delays that just make people give up, and and, and we, we lose. We, we, we're the ones that are losing skills and talents. And look at the UK, for example. I have so many friends who, straight from wherever they were coming from, they were recruited, and they're practicing medicine during their respective fields, no matter what. They just had to prove themselves by writing an exam, understanding the psycho, psychosocial aspect or doing some uh, you know, psych, cultural exams just to understand the different people in the, in, in, in the country, right? The diversity, and then they can practice. So we have so much to learn. And, and unfortunately, I don't even see the steps yet. Yeah, there's so much of... Um, our mindsets and education that's re- that's rooted in colonialism. It's it's ridiculous that you know you can look. I re- I actually remember a story of a nurse that I worked with. Uh, I shouldn't say the hospital of a nurse that I worked with, and I remember people like, oh, she doesn't speak very good English. Oh, can you understand what she's saying? And this nurse was phenomenal. Like if you wanted anybody on your team because there was like bad shit going down in labor and delivery that was the nurse that she wanted to call because she because in her previous home country she was a midwife she knew exactly what she needed to do but people oh do you under i don't understand what she's saying can you like i could not believe the ignorance of people when it came when it comes to people from different countries knowing that sometimes the education is even better Absolutely. Than it is here, right? Unbelievable that we we have a, a a solution that we can use and we are not utilizing it. It's it's quite devastating. And again, we will call on the governments too to um, look at how we can better expedite internationally uh, trained nurses as well. Last but not least, <laughs> if there's one thing, one thing I know we're narrowing it down to one that you'd want to see changed in 2022, what would that be? I honestly want to see people that have been silenced in the society in decision-making tables. Every decision-making table, for example, we have the Ontario um, Science Table. Why can't we have a disabled person on the table? Why can't we have a patient who's recovered from COVID on the table? Mm -hmm. Why can't we have a teacher on the table? Why can't we have a nurse on the table? These are people that are coming with very unique contributions that unfortunately a privileged mind cannot fathom. A privileged mind could never process the direction of your thoughts because it's your lived experience. That is a type of change I want to see. And that could be, you know, replicated in every other decision-making tables. And hopefully we can start to address the societal inequities that way. I think that's a good one. I don't think I have anything else to say. I think that's a, that's, it's not even, I wouldn't say that's ambitious. It's 
a very realistic goal. And I think it's something that we definitely should be working towards. Absolutely. This conversation has been so insightful for myself and Amy, like just to hear you, one of our colleagues, share your experiences and your nuggets of wisdom. There's like so many that I could name. Where can people find you? I mean, not everybody, not everybody knows you that listens. We have nurses from all over no, the world. We have nurse- yeah, so, so, come on. <laughs> so can you let our listeners know how they can most easily find you? Well, I'm on Twitter. Twitter is my therapy. And and what is your handle? My handle is well, my handle is B I R G I T O M for mother O. Yeah. On Twitter. On Twitter. At Twitter. Okay. Well, at Twitter. That's where we'll send them. If you if you need just like one or two more. What are we at? Like almost thirty K now? <laughs> we'll include it on our show notes. It's all good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Birgit, for coming on to talk to us at the Gritty Nurse Podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. What a delight.